Bibles should be open up to Luke 17. Right around verse 7 is where we're going to begin. And let me just set the stage. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his soon departure. He's about to go to Jerusalem, die, and then be buried, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. He's going to do that, and then in so doing, he's going to hand off the baton to his followers. So he's doing everything he can to prepare them for the future, for the fight, for the battle, for the path, for the race, for the match, for life. And he wants them to understand the rules. And so last week we studied what we called the rules of engagement for Christianity. What it looks like when we deal with one another. Jesus said in John or Luke 17, 1, he said, it's impossible that there should be no offenses. <laughs> he said, in other words, it's going to be rough. No matter where you go, you're going to get into fights. You're going to be offended. You may even be offensive. It's going to be tough. Have you guys found this out to be true? Has everywhere you've ever been with every single person let you down or you've let them down at least once? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let's see how many failures we have here. All of us. Man, Jesus said it's going to be rough. That's why when he handed out the armor, there's a helmet, there's a breastplate, there's some shoes. He's he's got us all covered up because it's going to be rough and tumble. Jesus, knowing that, gave us the rules to fight well. First, he just lays down that fact. It's impossible that it's going to be fight-free. So he tells us, here's the fourfold rules for engagement. We studied this out last week. Number one, rebuke. Okay. Number two, repent. Number three, forgive. And number four, repeat. Do it again. Rebuke, repent, forgive, repeat. Rebuke, repent, forgive. to do now the first thing to talk about rebuke this sounds all old testament and crazy like you know to rebuke people and to get in their business but to rebuke somebody in love is to truly care for their well-being and their forward progress so much so that instead of just watching them walk into failure you grab their collar and bring them into your life and say here's what i see i could be wrong i love you enough to tell you what's going on and if it's given in love it'll be received in love and rebuke will then lead to repentance where that person will say to you, you know what? I appreciate you calling me out. I actually am dealing with that. I trust you. Let's now move forward. And repentance can lead to then forgiveness, which can foreign to us. We would rather just turn our eye and not engage and not be a part of somebody's stuff. Here's what rebuking literally looks like. It's when you tell the person you're having lunch with that they have spinach in their teeth. You know what I'm saying? It's when you see something that they don't see and you love them enough to tell them. Have you ever let somebody go through an entire lunch with spinach in their teeth and not told them? Have you done that? We've all done that. And the worst is then when they come to somebody else who says, dude, you got something in your teeth. They're like, what? I was just talking to so-and-so for an hour and a half. They didn't tell me. It's hard though, is it not? It's hard to rebuke somebody. I'd rather just have a cup of coffee and take a nap. You know, I don't want to get involved. And yet the Lord says, no, I want you to. This is your call. I want you to send that text message. I want you to get involved. I want you to invite them to coffee. I want you to tell them if you see something in their lives they don't see. When they got something in their teeth or when their fly's down. (laughs) Were you guys at that service where I had my fly down? Do you guys remember that service? You were at that service? Paul Pridmore was up in the sound booth. I was at that service, and he wrote like with a big pen on a piece of paper, which you can't see, and I'm trying to read it and stay confident. You know, what's that say, you know? And anyways, and, and all of a sudden, Paul Pridmore just walked down the stairs, and he walked all the way up the aisle. I'm still teaching, and he hands me a note, and so I just reached down and still grabbed that, and I was kind of feeling confident that day, and so I grabbed the note and read it out loud. I was like, your fly is down. Whoa! I turned around. All right, you know. 
the sound guy told me, you know. <laughs> that video's been deleted off the internet. And... <laughs> Rebuke. When you tell somebody what's going on, this really does take love. It takes a two-way road. It takes humility on both parts. And really, the next guidance that Jesus gives us is to then re repent, to own it. When somebody shows you something, if it is indeed true, to then navigate forward with repentance, with a change of heart, a change of direction, a change of purpose. This is so important that you guys and I learn to do this in our Christianity. How many of you guys are good at making excuses? You don't need to raise your hands. How many of you guys are good at making excuses for yourselves, justifying things, seeing things through a different lens? Well, I know what you're saying, but you don't really understand all the details. <laughs> okay. I got three kids. They are master justifiers, master excuse makers, master minimizers, master shame shifters and blamers. You know where they got this from? Me. You know where I got it from? The same place you got yours from. My great, 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 great grandfather, Adam. Adam was the master shame shifter and blame sharer. Remember when he got busted in the Garden of Eden and God asked him, what happened? Who told you you were naked? Where are you at? Why are you hiding? All this stuff. Oh, 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 oh. And he got so mad, he said, it's the woman. <laughs> All the husbands are like, that's biblical. I told you, you know, it's the woman. He's the first guy. He blames the woman. And then he blames God. It's the woman you made me. It's like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. If you wouldn't have made me a woman, I wouldn't have done it. Like, what? <laughs> Let me just, it's not how it goes, guys. And we pass that down then to every generation. We have to learn to repent better. To just own it. To not justify the thing in your teeth and say, oh, no, that, I put that there on purpose. I'm saving it for later, you know? No. <sighs> I tell my kids this. When they're caught, which is all day long, when they're caught and I'm dealing with something, that if they own it, if they apologize, if they have a good attitude, and if they do something differently, I'm going to grab all the kids all at once and throw them in the car, and we're going to get ice cream, okay? That's what we do. If they repent well, there's going to be rewards, and there's going to be joy. But if they minimize, and if they share the blame, and if they excuse themselves, uh, now we're all doing burpees, you know? They, they do, there's a lot of burpees at my house yesterday, like dozens of burpees yesterday. A burpee is when you're, you lay down on the ground and stand up and lay down on the ground. It's a physical discipline, you know, yeah, you just, you know. Nemo did about 50 burpees yesterday. But anyways, that's beside the point. <laughs> Jesus says, I want you to rebuke, and then I want you to repent. One of the best ways repentance will be seen in your life is if the next principle is in play, which is forgiveness. This is where this all comes from. Verse 6, Jesus says, I want you to forgive people, actually verse 5, seven times in a day if they commit the same offense and yet repent seven times in a day. The number seven wasn't the limit. He was speaking it's limitless. It's a perfect lifestyle of forgiveness. That when a person repents, when your kids repent, when your spouse offends you and repents, when your employees repent, when your friends repent, when somebody repents, you are obligated to say, I forgive you. Ice cream for everyone. <laughs> How many times? Seven scoops that day. This takes some effort on your part. And my wife and I have been married for 17 years, and we have worked hard up until this point in our marriage to create what we call an atmosphere of grace and forgiveness, where when we stumble, when we make mistakes, when we come up short, and when I say we stumble and come up short and make mistakes, I'm speaking about myself, really. That's kind of how it works. When, when this happens in our marriage, we have agreed to forgive. 
cases against each other. Instead of becoming bitter, we have, dis- we have worked hard to say, you know what? If you've made a mistake yet again, it's the same one we've seen before. In Jesus' name, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to embrace, embrace you, and, and I'm going to grace you. And this needs to and with your employees and employers and all the people around you. It is a command. It's the rules of engagement. And then the fourth thing, not only is to rebuke, and then you're to repent, and then you're to forgive, then you've got to repeat this thing over and over and over your entire life through. Jesus taught this to his disciples. They rolled their eyes in the back of their head, and they say, <laughs> We're going to need a little help with that, bro. They actually asked this. They said, we're going to need more faith to do that. You realize this. They've been with him for three years. He gives them a direct command, and they push back on him. Sounds like my kids. Quest for faith. First thing he said was this. If you have a little bit of faith, and you plant it in obedience, it will produce miracles in your life. If you put it in the ground, a mustard seed's faith, it will then take the mulberry bush around you and uproot it and cast it away. It'll get the rooted issues and the problems stopping you. If you have a little bit of faith planted in obedience, you're going to walk in power. Just do what you know to do. Trust him is what he's saying. That's kind of cool. He could have ended there. It would have been a Hallmark card. You know, if you have a mustard seed faith, you know, all that. Instead, he goes on to tell a story. And he says, if the servant is serving the master and he's done his job, yet there's more work to do, you know what the master expects him to do? Nike said it, just do it. He said, you just got to do it. You've been serving all day. You come in, guess what? There's more to do, serving. I need to underscore something at the beginning of this message. This message that I'm preaching today primarily is for Christians. It is not for non-Christians, not for seekers or looky-loos or visitors that are here or not Christians, or maybe there's some spies that came to church today or whatever, you know. <laughs> this is South Beach, man. It gets nuts here, you know. Whatever. Maybe you're, if you're a Christian here, this is a message for you. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 17, he looked at his disciples. He said, guys, it's going to be a fight. Here's the rules. They pushed back a little bit. And he said, no, no, you do what I said. And if you need any other illustrations, take this one of a servant who's been serving and working, doing right. And as soon as he comes in, the master expects him to serve and work and do right some more. They would understand this in that Jewish culture. This would have made a lot of sense. The master and the servant relationship. We're Americans, most of us here, and we've kind of understood this uh, kind of this easy believism and this greasy grace and kind of this easy Christianity and gospel light where Jesus loves us all. And as soon as we get saved by just raising our hands, I can raise my hands and then go back out and do the exact same thing I've always done. And there's no real need for change or for growth or for development or for devotion or for worship or for sacrifice. I, I got saved. That's kind of just waiting to go to heaven until then. And the Bible says to you and I who are believers... We're servants now. We're bond servants that we have been bought with a price and we are to glorify God in our bodies which are his. He owns them. There are strong words to people like you and me and if you're like me, you kind of like this easy believism where I get to go to heaven for free, get out of hell free and I get to live my life free as I want to and the Lord would say, well, kind of, but you got to understand there's some rules and there's some ways, and there's some expectations. And he looks at his disciples then, who pushed back and said, we're not sure if we really want to do that. And he says, did I stutter? <laughs> and I, I kind of like this kind of teaching. Just a couple weeks before Jesus would die on the cross, 
I'm not saying he's losing his cool. He's not. But I do see that he knows his days are numbered. And his time to impart wisdom to his followers is limited. And instead of just teaching some peripheral ideas, he's saying, no, dude, this is it. When he says this is it, you have to go in this way and keep working, keep serving, keep forgiving, keep loving over and over. When he says that, by the way, he's going to demonstrate it too. He doesn't ask you or me to do anything that he himself didn't do and wasn't willing to do until he died. I was talking to one of my friends in, in my office in between services, and we were talking about Christians and doing stuff. And the question came up, what, is, what, do, what are we even supposed to be doing primarily as Christians? Doing, doing, doing. And I want to, in context, say the context of this message is what Christians are to be doing, which is to be loving people, forgiving them, extending grace, rebuking in love, and forgiving freely. How many of you guys have found yourself being a Christian, though, forgiven by God and yet quick to hold back forgiveness toward another? How many of you guys can maybe in your little mind, I shouldn't say that, in your Rolodex, in your, your big mind, your big brain, your big brain, you're very sophisticated. How many guys in, in, your, in your mind, I'm getting my words mixed up here. What I meant to say was in your mind, create a little list, not your little mind, create a big list. But how many guys in your mind can come up with a list of people that you right now are justified in your stance to keeping at an arm's distance in unforgiveness? You might not be best friends with them because of the abuse or heart hurt, I understand that, but you haven't forgiven. Then they, they, they don't deserve your forgiveness. They're completely upside down in what they've been doing and the things they say and the things they think, they're so wrong. And God would say, can you forgive them? <laughs> no. I, I have a little list in my little mind of people that, that's on that. And the Lord would say, hey, let's do something with that list this week, Luke. Even if it's just between you and the Lord, say, I'm gonna forgive that person. Forgive me, Lord, for holding this grudge against them. Forgive me for hearing the direct teaching of your word and deciding to do it my own way. And so Jesus gives these two responses to their request for faith. And I want to study this out quickly. So look at verse 7. He says, And which of you having, ser- having a servant, that's us, plowing or tending a sheep, that's what we do, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Stop right there, eyes up here. Jesus uses this picture of a servant and a master. And he says, when the servant is out, what's he doing? He's plowing the ground and he's chasing sheep. That's what it says. He's plowing the fields and he's herding the sheep. How many of you guys think in that day plowing a field without machines, without electricity, without gas, without anything except the tools under your hand and an ox? How many of you guys think in the Middle East with dry conditions, how many of you guys think that would be hard, plowing the, plowing the land? J- Jesus is using the picture of plowing the land to describe Christianity, just so you know. And he also goes on to say if he wasn't plowing the land, he was chasing the sheep, he was a shepherd. How many of you guys think chasing sheep could be difficult in that time? You come in from chasing sheep all day, you look at your arms, there's sheep bite marks all over the place, you know, and sheep stuff, you smell, and the sheep, you don't even know if you got them all. Jesus uses chasing sheep and plowing the hard ground to describe Christianity. I think that's important. Because in that requires a strength that comes from above and a direction from his word and a decision from our spirits to say, yeah, this is tough. This is hard. That doesn't mean it's wrong. You ever done something hard, and so you decide that it's wrong? We call that exercise in America. Okay? Just <laughs> join the gym. Oh, cool. Now what? That's all I did. You know, it's like, <laughs> did you go sweat? I, the thing that blows my mind the most is when people get on one of those ellipticals and try and go for like 30 minutes, and they put one of the big power fans on them so they don't get hot and sweat. 
And I'm just thinking, you kind of want to sweat. You know, you're there to sweat. Why are you trying to cool off? We don't like doing hard things. Jesus here says Christianity is hard. It's just like plowing up unfertile, fallow ground and chasing rebellious, wayward, lost sheep. And Jesus says when you're done doing that, the servant comes in, what's he do? Does he expect there to be a meal for him? No. On the contrary, there's more things to be done. This is a message for Christians who are saved by grace, not of works. It's a gift, lest anyone should boast. Anybody here? You don't, actually, don't raise your hand. I'm going to ask the question. You answer in your heart. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You answer, answer. And if you know, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. <sighs> that doesn't mean that you and I just get to sit on our blessed assurance and wait for the Lord's return and do nothing. Instead, days before Jesus would die, he says, guys, I need you to keep working. In the primary context, it's relational work. Okay? It's not just doing stuff religiously. It's a relational commitment to people in their mistakes and their failures and in their sins to forgive them. Because the, God, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Because the son of man came not to condemn the world but through him the world might be saved. That's why Jesus came. And he's like, I'm going away. Here's the baton. We're like, who do we hit first? You know, he's like, no, don't hit anybody with it. What are you doing? Forgive people. Love people. And you and I always wait to find someone to forgive that's forgivable. You know, we wait to find, we wait to love people that are lovable. Jesus didn't show it that way. And he gives us, I believe, this picture. Verse 8, he says, you're not ready to eat. There's more stuff to do. Look at verse 9. He says, does he think that the servant, because he did the things that were commanded him, that does he thank him? In that culture, the servant's not going to come in and get a big old attaboy from the master. Hey, thanks for doing what I told you to do. Don't you expect the Lord to thank you from time to time? Just be honest with me. If you're an American Christian, you're like, I wrote a tithe check today, first time in five years. Woo, you know. See that, Lord? And you expect the Lord to thank you. Or maybe you served at the Thanksgiving dinner and you showed up early and put a glove on and gave somebody some taters, you know. Or maybe you serve faithfully in the Sunday school or you do a lot of things. Do you sometimes think in your mind that the Lord's thankful for you? Let me qualify this. He will say by his grace and mercy one day, well done good and faithful servant, come into your glory. And yet there's something within us when we do just a little bit, we think that the Lord is mind blown at our service. There are some people, I am that some people from time to time that just think I'm all that. And Lord, did you see how hard I worked all week? I taught three services. I did a wedding. I did a memorial. I married him and I buried him. I did all kinds of stuff for you. And the Lord says, there's so many things, Luke, you did not do for me. There's so many things you did for me, Luke, that you did through my power and my ability. You think I'm going to just thank you? And this is one of those hard messages where I need to, even though I have run hard this week, you might be able to say, it's not I, but it is the grace in me. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? He said, I've worked harder than anybody. Whoa. He went on to say, not I, but the grace that was in me. But nonetheless, I am working hard. How? What's he doing? Horizontal ministry one to another it's so easy to get saved and to retract okay read the bible even memorize a verse to no good to no purpose and yet the lord would say i want you're the light of the world you're the salt yeah, a, a city that can't be hidden but if the salt loses its flavor oh and he gives us these instructions some of us are waiting for that attaboy and what god would look at us and say hey there's more people out there as a matter of fact, he goes even further. Verse 10, so likewise, you, that's me and you, 
when you've done all those things which you were commanded. You say, we are unprofitable servants. We've done what, we're, what was our duty to do. This isn't a self-abasement idea where you're hating yourself. But it is more of an esteem of the master where you, instead of wanting to have a little bit for yourself, you realize who you're serving and why you're serving him and that you need to go all in. You see, we have a church idea in our culture that is very consumer-based. What can I get out of it? How's this going to feed me? This is, this is how we all are. What, what do I get out of this? And people pick their churches, people pick their books, people pick their devotional material, people pick their praise songs, people pick the time they pray or don't pray based on what I can get out of it. And in this particular portion of Scripture, Jesus looks at these guys and says, did I stutter? Go serve people. Go give. Forgive. Endure with those who will not endure with you. In the next portion, we're going to see Jesus model this, just so you know. Fast forward a month from now, Jesus will hang on the cross and will do this beautifully. He asks you and I to do it, though, to lean into it, to realize that what he's calling us to do is to serve the people around us with kindness and forbearance and denying ourselves, not wanting to be thanked or appreciated, but instead to do it as unto the Lord. I'm reading a book right now about church culture, and it talks about servanthood versus volunteerism. And it talks about within your church, if you have volunteers, a volunteer culture, that is people who sign up to help out in various areas. If they're volunteers in the kitchen or in Sunday school or on stage or behind the scenes, if they're volunteers, they'll be hit or miss, and they will eventually stop coming, and they're not even afraid to have no-shows because it's just volunteering. But if in your church you have a culture of servanthood, where the men and women who serve, they're not just volunteering for the organization, but they are serving the king who bled out for them. And their desire is not to please the pastor or to please the staff, but instead to serve Jesus. That changes everything in the way that you navigate forward in your life, that you do what you do for his namesake because of your master. And you are willing to then serve his call and his mission. This would be a good day for you to say, what am I, am I just a volunteer for the Lord's army whenever I want to? Or am I really serving Jesus Christ because he first served me? And maybe this whole message and the timing of it all is just for me, but I for one want to be one who's found to be serving the Lord, not at my pace and to please me, but instead to obey what God has said. In Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa arrests James the brother of John, one of the original apostles. And he puts him in jail. And the Bible says that he orders his execution and his head is cut off. That's what the book of Acts tells us. The details of that execution are not given, but history records them. And in the history books, as James is led to the guillotine, his accuser, this Roman guard, leading him to the execution block, the historians tell us that James was so kind so forgiving, so benevolent, and so true that as he was walking to the guillotine to have his head cut off, that accuser was so impacted by James's faith and love that after the sword was put upon his head, that accuser gave his life to Jesus Christ and laid his head on the block and was killed next. Can you imagine being James, the first of the original 12 to be martyred? Stephen was the first martyr in Acts 7. And now it's James's turn. And as James is walking, he's talking to his accuser. He's like, hey, Jesus loves you, bro. <laughs> Jesus really loves you. <laughs> he forgives you. I forgive you too. 
I'm about to die, and you're going to die eventually too. And hey, would you want to go to heaven with me when you die? Like, and he starts leading him to the Lord and forgiving him. And this guy is so mind blown at his kindness and his benevolence and his forbearance because Jesus commanded him right here to do just that, to forgive. How many times? Seven. What if it kills me? <sighs> it will kill you. And God will redeem then your sacrifice and people's lives will be changed. How, how important is it to you? This idea of work for Jesus, farming and fallow ground and chasing sheep. I think it's important that we as Christians who, you nodded if I asked you if you're a Christian, you said, that's me. That Jesus would look to you, say, you've been saved? It's amazing. Now I want you to forgive freely. And I want you to love wholly. Now, in our story, it continues. Jesus shows us what this looks like. He's, he's the model and the master. He's the teacher and the modeler of what it looks like. And so Jesus is now going to extend himself to those who are in need of forgiveness and healing because what he asks us to do, he also is willing to do because the Bible says that Jesus, while he's our master, he's also a servant. Mark 10.35 is your homework assignment for scripture memorization this week. Mark 10.35. The Bible says this. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 35. Jesus looks at himself, who's the master of the world. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then he hands the baton to us and says, would you do the same? It's not about you. Your life is to be a service to other people, to give, to be a ransom for their benefit as well. Jesus teaches it and models it. Now look at verse 11. It says, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. That is, Galilee's up here. This is the midst of Samaria and Galilee and Samaria down here in Judea and Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and I need you to remind yourself what he's doing when he gets there. Anybody remember what he's doing? He's gonna die. I've been to Jerusalem twice. I didn't die either time. I went there, I took some pictures, I bought some stuff, saw some friends, had a good time. Jesus is not going there to sightsee or to shop or to see old buddies. He's on his way to Jerusalem for one purpose, to give his life a ransom for many. Wouldn't that be radical if you left church today with that same mindset? I'm gonna give my life a ransom for many. I'm gonna serve the people who've hurt me, the people who've betrayed me, the people who aren't on my team. I'm gonna love them. By the way, if you decide to be a conduit of God's love for people, you're gonna get God's love all over you. Okay, be ready for that. It's gonna make a mess. It's gonna be awesome. When you become a funnel for God's love onto other people, you become the most joyful, blessed person in the world. And if you feel like a Christian who's been baptized in pickle juice, you know, maybe it's because the love of God doesn't flow through you to others freely as he would have it. Well, look what happens here. It says Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 12, now as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. He gets into a certain village with 10 unnamed men. I love the details here that are left out. He's leaving Galilee. He's in the midst of Samaria on the way to Judea and Jerusalem. We don't even know where he's at. A no-name town, probably Newport, possibly Walport, maybe Toledo. We're not sure. It's unnamed, we don't know where he's at, but he shows up and there's 10 homies that have leprosy standing afar off. Now, if you don't know about leprosy, leprosy was a skin condition in that day that biblically left you in the boondocks and outsourced with other guys on the outskirts, I should say, with people that also had leprosy. Those are your only friends, those who couldn't help themselves and were contagious to others. For you Bible students, you know this, that leprosy, whenever it comes up in the scripture, always speaks of a type of and an illustration of sin. 
leprosy. It was a skin disease. It started actually on the inside and then was evidenced on the outside. Maybe a white spot, maybe a red rash, something small. Again, it wasn't topical, it was internal, and it would come through the skin and be noticed. Oh, what's that? A little itch, a little scratch. And then it would begin to spread. It was contagious. It would then be pervasive, and it wouldn't stop, and it would cover the entire region of your body. As it would begin to spread, it would begin to deaden your senses. You couldn't feel pain anymore. You didn't know where things were. You'd kick walls and kick things. And if this was a barbecue, you would put your hand on it, and people would think they're smelling bacon or something. Like, what's that smell? Oh, that's just my hand burning up. And you actually couldn't, you couldn't feel what was going on. You'd become desensitized. And therefore, you would become hurt by things that were painful and dangerous and true stories of lepers, not with extra strength, but doing things with their hands that people couldn't do because it would hurt them, and leaving blood all over items as they would pick them up, and unable to engage properly and navigate forward, and eventually your skin would rot, and it would begin to smell, and you literally would be dead while still alive, ultimately living in pain, anguish, and isolation. Which, by the way, I just described leprosy, but it's the exact same description of sin that it starts out internally. Something within us engages to something outside of us. And it usually starts small. It's kind of not necessarily a big deal. And yet it grows and it takes over. And sin, if gone unchecked, ultimately would cause us to lose our feeling and sensories and, and our alarm system won't work for greater dangers. And eventually it begins to rot our soul and we begin to stink and our life falls apart and we find ourselves, this is some of your stories, it is mine, through my own sin, distanced from the camp of God's people, hanging out with other lepers. Don't raise your hand, but ever found yourself, all you can see around you is other lepers? Like, what are you guys all doing here? Like, these are my people and sin will take you places you don't want to go and you'll be a walking dead person. Jesus here on the way to Jerusalem The Bible says he sees and hears this group. This group sees him and screams. The Bible says they're afar off. Some commentators say that if you had leprosy, you were to be a thousand paces from everybody that didn't have leprosy, and you were to scream when you saw normal people, unclean, unclean, in case you were wondering why we're over here, unclean, and you were to give that warning, don't come over here, and you would have a horrible life. You imagine going to high school tomorrow, unclean, you know, I was like, it's not cool. This was their existence. This was a group of men that nobody could help, that nobody loved, nobody wanted. And Jesus, on his way to die for your sins and my sins, interacts with them. He sees them. If you're wondering what this is going to look like in your life tomorrow, who you're going to forgive and how it might look and how how dignified you're going to be and all that, Jesus then shows us this story right afterwards. There's no dignity in this story. (laughs) This is the gnarliest of gnarliest. I've been driving around town like you do, and yet the Lord has made my eyes open up to a few of our transients. There's a few transients in our town that, that are uh, perennial, or they're, they're here all the time, and, and the Lord has kind of put them on my heart. I said, hey, when are you going to make time for that guy? And I, I went by one guy today. I haven't had time, and I just, I prayed this morning. Lord, would you give me time for him? Just make it happen. And, and maybe the Lord would say, 
You got, you got all the time in the world, Luke. Ball's in your court. And I'm excited to engage this week with people that maybe are in our peripheral, guys that we wouldn't necessarily engage with, and God shows us his son's heart for people in this condition. Look at verse 12. It says, then he entered a certain village, and there met him 10 men who were lepers. In verse 13, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. I like this verse. Because in their condition, they see Jesus rightly. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. There are people that pray, and when they pray, they don't quite see themselves in this condition. And yet, based on this situation, these men saw themselves as they were in total desperation for Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in a situation that's over your head, and you pray a little better than normal? Has things gotten hot for you before, and you're like just crying out to the Lord, and you're journaling, and you're, you're weeping, and you're on your knees? And, you, and sometimes, oftentimes, that comes from hard times, the Bible says in Psalm 176, verse, no, no, Psalm, there's no Psalm 176. No. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 67, I have a little dyslexia going on here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your precepts. The Bible says before life got tough for me, I just did whatever I wanted, but when things hit the fan, we often come to this conclusion like these guys did here. Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14, so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Stop right there, eyes up here. This is where the miracle and the magic begins to happen. Jesus sees them a thousand paces away, and he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now there's a whole bunch, we could do a whole teaching on Leviticus 14 and the instructions for lepers to show themselves to the priest. There's actually two chapters for lepers when they're healed, not to be healed, when they're healed. When a leper is healed, what they're to do. Up until this moment in history, a leper had never been healed outside of Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army in 2 Kings 5. Nobody had ever done what is instructed in Leviticus chapters 14 and 15 until Jesus shows up and he gives them the command, go to the high priest, and they haven't even been healed yet. They look at each other. These guys were not allowed to go to the high priest. You realize that, right? If you have leprosy, you don't go to church. The first thing Jesus said to them, go to church. They're all looking at each other with no noses and no ears and like, you don't look too good. Y'all wanna go to church? I don't know, where, where should we go? Probably South Beach, you know, like, <laughs> probably South Beach. We'll have a whole row for us right there. And these guys are commanded to go to church. We could talk at length about this. And they all look at each other and say, let's do it. Let's see what happens. They knew they couldn't go to church. Can't go to church. You're going to get in trouble. Stone you outside the gates. Not let you in. You're not going in. He said to go. As they went, they were healed. It doesn't say on the first step. Maybe when they stood and left, boom, healed. Maybe a block into it, maybe a quarter mile, maybe when they got to the door. We don't know when they were healed, but it was their obedience coupled with his commands that brought the miracle. There are commands for you and me today in our lives that are very simple and straightforward, and yet what's stopping you from victory and breakthrough is your obedience. So clear what God says to do, to worship, to give, to serve, to forgive, to witness, to love, to abstain, to be holy. And yet we're sitting here in our rags, and I don't know if I can do that. Never done it before? Sounds impossible. <laughs> God's commandments are his enablements. And if you would just do it, whatever it is, if you would just try it. He says to evangelize, to share the gospel with people. Well, that sounds crazy. What if they reject it? What if they reject me? What if they say no? 
Have you ever done it before? No, I'm too scared. Try it. The Bible has commands all over the place for you and I to walk in and to believe, and yet you're sitting here, myself also, in our excuses, and we don't want to do what God has said to do because of this, that, and the other, and God says, if you start to obey me, just watch. I promise you. Remember when the commander of the Syrian army, Naaman, heard that there was a man of God in Israel that could heal him? He had leprosy. Second Kings 5, your second homework assignment. First one is Mark 10.35. Second assignment is 2 Kings 5. Don't memorize it. Read it. And the Bible says that when Naaman got to Elijah with his leprosy, he asked for healing. And the Bible says that Elijah sent out his servant Gehazi to him to give him a message. And he said, here's what I want you to do. Go to the Jordan River and get in once and get out. And get in twice and get out. Get in three times and get Get in seven times and get out and you'll be healed. How did Naaman respond, Bible students? <laughs> Whatever. No, he did not do it. He ran. He said, I'm not doing that. There are better rivers. I want him to come out and wave his hand over me. He should just be able to heal me. I'm out of here. And he got in his chariot and took off home. He had a buddy with him, though, that said, hey, boss, I know you're in charge and stuff, but why don't you just do what he said? You should try it. Just give it a whirl. Just, just humble yourself. Take off your armor and get in the Jordan River. Did you know that the Jordan River's gnarly? Like, it's not that, it's not that pretty. It's pretty gross. That was his excuse. There's other better rivers for me to get bathed in. What does this have? Obedience to the Lord's commands. And you guys know the story. Naaman did it, humbled himself, exposed his leprosy to his men, got in the water. And on the seventh time, the Bible says, when he got out as prescribed, when he got out of the water, his skin was brand new like a baby's. A miracle. When God says to do certain things, you and I in our ontological minds reject them if we're not careful well that doesn't make no sense he should be able to do it on the third time not seven seven's superfluous he should be able to come out and just wave his hand I, I pray in Jesus name that the Lord would show you that one thing that you're holding out on right now I'm not going to do it I'm just not going to do it. it doesn't make sense to me I know the Bible says it's clear forgive serve love give trust whatever it is His commands are all over what if you just said, I'm going to do it? Remember when Peter said to the Lord, hey, Lord, if that's you out there, bid me to come out on the water with you. And Jesus said, okay, come on out. And he said, come out on the water. And when he stepped out on the water, the water became firm. Not until then. When he did what God had clearly said to do, he received the miracle. Verse 14 again so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, now the story gets even better. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice, glorified God, fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Those two verses are so loaded with color. So many things going on. This guy's with the 10 in their distress. He's with the 10 in their healing, and then he leaves the nine and becomes the one who responds in devotion to the Lord in worship. And with a loud voice falling down at his feet, and he's the least likely to succeed, a Samaritan, not a Jew, not one of the insiders, but an outsider. And he pursues Jesus and gives his life wholeheartedly to him. This is the right response to a healed life. As a matter of fact, I asked you a question earlier. I said, are you a Christian? Most of us are like, yeah, of course, I'm no dummy, you know. Of course, I'm a Christian. Just a Christian. You got coffee here, right? I'm a Christian. And I get it. I get it. I'm a Christian, too. 
And yet what it means to be a Christian, it means to be one of these 10 lepers having been rescued by Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've been rescued. And when you look down, you see yourself now, you're like, no way, dude. For real, I'm saved by grace, not of works. It's a gift. I have a purpose and a, a hope and a future and a life. I have all that. And you be, that's what, it says he began to worship with a loud voice. This guy goes all Hillsong United on his knees, you know, and the lasers are going and the smoke machine comes on and recording a live worship album right here. Has this happened in your life? Have you found yourself so transformed that you leave the, the nine? You leave and you're like, dude, guys, wow, you're healed too. That's great, but I, I, I want to go see Jesus. A couple things Jesus notices. I need you to check this out. Verse 17. So Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Stop right there, eyes up here. This is a sobering set of red letters for me. The Bible indicates here that Jesus noted what he had done for all of them. He says, weren't there 10? Didn't I cleanse? I cleansed 10, right? Like one, two, I knew what I was doing. And is there only one? That, that return to give glory, and yet there's nine that were cleansed, and, and you're, you're a Samaritan at that? You're not even, you don't even have the full picture? And he went on to identify that God is keeping track of all of the good things he's done for you, listen, and your response to them. This is a message you're not gonna hear very often. This is a message we don't like to hear. We like to think that we're God's favorite kids, and he's super proud of us and super happy with us. And by grace, a free gift, he is. And yet he looks at you and says, I've given you so much. This brought me to my knees last night and on my face as I realized all that God has deposited in my life personally for me, all that God has given to me, a leper with no hope and no way to help myself, and all he's given to me, and I repented and said, Lord, I've been such a jerk, such a spoiled brat, such a selfish Fool, such a, and I, the, the illustrations kept going in my own mind, and I, and I repented and said, Lord, make me a servant who would return and worship at your feet like this guy that would be devoted. The Lord noticed them in their distress, and he sees you in your distress. Maybe you're a leper on the outside. You still need deliverance. You're not even saved yet, and today God sees you, and he hears you. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The Bible also says that he noticed this guy in his devotion. He sees you in your distress, but he also sees you in your devotion. When you get up in the morning, when you worship him, when you serve him, when you do and respond what he said to do, God notices that. The third thing God notices is he noticed the distraction of these nine. He sees the distress. He sees the devotion, but he also knows. Where's those, where's the other homies at? Where are they at? And that's what I had to repent of. Because Lord, you've done so much and in my own heart, and you search yours, I'll search mine. There are such areas of distraction, such areas where I haven't checked in with the Lord and worshiped him and agreed to then respond and keep serving and keep plowing and keep chasing sheep and keep doing stuff. Instead, you get a little bit of freedom in your wholeness. In this particular text. The Bible says 10 are healed physically, and yet only one is given those words from Jesus, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you whole. I believe all 10 were physically healed. Awesome. 
I believe only one had a deeper work of the Spirit in his life, that he was brought to salvation, that he was brought to a saving faith. Why? Because his response was different. It was one of worship and adoration, one of appreciation, one of a rejection of distraction instead of commitment to devotion. Really, it's not that hard, by the way. An attitude of gratitude will keep you so near and dear to the Lord. Wouldn't that be awesome if you just asked God to give you an attitude of gratitude today? Lord, forgive me for being so mean, so ungrateful, so cynical and so critical, so small. If you just, what's the old saying? Count your blessings one by one. Does it go any further than that? Is that good? If you count your blessings one by one, you'll find out there are so many of them and you'll find yourself having really nothing to complain about. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys are really good at making stuff up to complain about? I'm pretty good at it. And yet the Lord says, I've given you so much, bro. I've given you so much. I've delivered you, and now I'm asking you to devote yourself to me in worship and in service. He says to this man, rise up and go your way. I'm going to actually ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I'm going to invite the worship team up to lead us in a song, a time of repentance, communion, a time of remembering what the Lord has done for us. This message primarily was for Christians. For those who said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer for sure. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm no dummy. And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would lean into this time of response now, if you're a Christian. And if you are indeed a, a Christian here and you would say in your heart of hearts to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to be a distracted Christian. I don't want, I don't want to be... I don't want to have the deliverance you've given to me and then go my way. And I've been doing that. I'm here today. I'm at church. That's what you asked them to do, to go to church. That was the one thing. That was the religious thing you asked him to do. Go see the priest. And this man probably did that. He did go see the priest. But he also had an inward response that was seen in worship towards the master. Something deeper. And if you're here and you've been saved... But you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm distracted. I, I don't want to be that. I want to be devoted. Would you just, if you want to be that one, would you just raise up your hand right now? Just humble yourself and say, Lord, help me. Show me what it looks like, Lord, to, to be noticed by you in this way. This guy goes down in history. This man who'd been saved holy. Raise up your hand if you want that for your life. My hand's up. In Jesus' name, Lord, I want to be saved holy. Not just alleviated from pressures and pain, but instead found at your feet worshiping. And, and when you raise your hand, you're not promising to God that you're going to do better. That's not it. You're, you're asking for help. My hand is up. Lord, I need help. Identify those areas in our lives that distract us from worshiping you. You, you can put your hands down. And, and, and for you who need deliverance, maybe you came into church today and you're still a leper. You don't even know what I'm talking about and you don't know Jesus and you would say, I think I'm, I'm more messed up than that. I'm not just a distracted Christian. I'm, a, I'm an unsaved leper. And I need to give my life to Jesus. I need him to heal me of my leprosy, my, my sinful condition. And I, I, want, I want to do that. I want, I want today to be that day. Would you just raise up your hand? Raise up your hand nice and high to, to Jesus. This is between you and him. So I want to be a Christian. I want to be that one who gets your forgiveness, gets your mercy, and then extends that mercy and forgiveness to anybody and everybody as a display of how good you are. Raise up your hand if that's you.
You need to be forgiven and you want to then forgive others. You want to take that mantle and become a servant of Jesus and cry out to him as your master. Raise up your hand. Lord, you see the hands. You see the hands. And you are, if you've raised your hand right now, it's between you and you're saved. You're saved. He does the saving. You, you've extended your hands and that's me. I need to be saved. And he reaches down and he does the work in Jesus' name. As you invite him into your heart and confess him as one who's been killed for you and then raised from the dead, you shall be saved. You can put your hands down. And Lord, as we all come to the table now in Jesus' name, may we remind ourselves that, Lord, you bled out, that you knew, Lord, what you were asking us to do because you were about to do it yourself as you extended forgiveness and grace and mercy toward us through your broken body, through your spilled blood. May we, Lord, examine ourselves and proclaim your death until you return. We do what we do now in Jesus' name with thanksgiving, with celebration, with hope, and with peace. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said...